might, it's, might today's sermon might begin or might seem like what we just read, like having picked up Star Wars Episode 3 or 4, like, oh, I think I missed something. I think something happened when it says on our text that begins with that then Joseph could not restrain him. Well, something's going on here, right? Now, I'm just going to give a brief reminder of what we spent a long time with leading up to this point. Joseph had been living in Egypt for about 22 years. He probably had never expected to see his father or his little brother Benjamin, and he certainly had no desire to see or talk to his other brothers. They were treacherous, they were villainous, wicked. They had tormented him, they had sold him as a slave when he was 17. But here he was with his brothers, including Benjamin this time, standing in front of them. He is Lord of Egypt, as it were. They were starving shepherds begging for their lives. I wonder if in that moment he had some flashbacks. If he thought back to his story, the story that God had brought him through. His path to prosperity had not been easy, hated by his brothers, thrown into a pit, screaming for mercy, sold to Ishmaelites for the price of a common slave, and then sold again into Egypt, into bondage. But as we read in our text over and over again, God was with Joseph. So he rose to power to serve Pharaoh's captain of the guard, but false accusation of his moral steadfastness landed him in prison. Still, God was with him, so he rose to prominence in prison and became the favorite of the prison keeper. A chance interpretation, so it would seem, of a couple of dreams given by a couple of desperate prisoners, but the interpretation given by God promised freedom, but he was forgotten again. Hope snatched away. For several more years. But then another strange set of dreams, and Pharaoh, unable to sleep, wants an interpretation. Finally, he's remembered, and God was with him. And he interpreted the dream for Pharaoh, and it was good and bad news, and he is the wisest man around, apparently. And so he rises once again to prominence, and even calls himself and says to his brothers at one point, um, I am like a father to Pharaoh. Not in authority, not in power, but basically, Pharaoh does whatever I tell him. And so he's a prominent man now. And here he is with all of these riches, dressed as an Egyptian, talking like an Egyptian, not speaking in Hebrew. Here he is standing in front of his abusers. And they have fallen on their face before him multiple times. What will he do? They had grown. He had seen growth in them, yes. But I would hardly say that their growth was exponential. That their repentance was explicit and undeniable. I believe that at this moment, before this moment right here, just that had leading up to this moment, I guess you would say, 
that he had decided, well, I won't exact vengeance on them. They can go home. But Benjamin, I want to stay with me. Perhaps to save Benjamin from them, knowing how much he was favored and what that did. And now Benjamin's the favored son. What will they, will they do to him? For whatever reason, he concocts a plan to get rid of his brothers, but to keep Benjamin with him. But Judah, Judah, the brother who had suggested sell him off. Judah, the brother who was likely one of the most important and strongest of the brothers, regarded as a lion's whelp amongst them, had laughed and joked and was eating his meal just fine as they sold him to the, to the slavers. And this Judah, for some strange reason, call, pulls Joseph aside and says, take me in the place of Benjamin. I will be a slave. The very thing that Joseph surely had wished that Judah had done for him 22 years ago. Take me. Let everyone go. I'll be the slave. At this moment, Joseph cannot contain himself. He had wept before, but it had always been private. He'd washed his face. He'd put it together and spoken in, in Egyptian to them, but he can't help himself. He is moved by the sacrifice of the one who is the cause of his slavery. And so he weeps openly. Now, just for a moment, the text doesn't tell us what happened here, except that the brothers sort of stand slack-jawed in the whole situation. But what was running through their minds? The Lord of Egypt is weeping in front of them. And the weeping is so loud, it says that all in the house hear him weeping. He yells, everyone out! But it doesn't hide the sounds of his crying. And now he knows, I have to tell them. <laughs> and so he says, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? And the brothers, they say nothing. <laughs> and he has to say, come here. I am Joseph. Your brother. Up to this point, Moses, the writer of the scripture, had been using the word the men to describe them. This is the first time now he uses the phrase brothers. Your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. I mean, he acknowledges and accuses it. You sold me. I'm your brother. What happens next is amazing and the point of the entire Joseph story. The entire thing hangs on what's next. What we call it Joseph's speech. It occupies the most of the text and most of the context of it. It's, it's long. It's 15 verses. There's a lot there. We're going to come back to Joseph's speech next. It's the point. We want to hit that in a few moments. But after he gives this speech to them, this moving speech, he goes beyond, I am your brother. And he says, no, go. Get dad. Get all the grandkids. Get everything you own. 
I'm going to protect you and provide for you. All they can do, all he can do, is fall on one another and weep. And this phrase in verse 15 at the end of his speech is fascinating. Moreover, he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. Seems like a very innocuous thing to put in the Holy Scripture, right? So his brothers talked. Of course, they talked with each other. But as we have learned in our study of Genesis, the writer doesn't do anything by accident. The beginning of the Joseph story in chapter 43 opens with saying that, before we even have about the whole coat of colors and all that stuff, says that Joseph's brothers could not speak to him kindly. Full circle. The implication is now he talks to them kindly. Pharaoh hears. The house of Pharaoh hears. Joseph's family is here. Now, whether Pharaoh responds the way he does because he just really likes family reunions or because he's thinking the wisest man in all the kingdom has brothers, I don't know. But for some reason, Pharaoh's like, bring them here. Get everybody here. Go get your father. Go get everyone. And so Joseph sends them. They go, and they, they go back into Canaan to get, to get the family and to come to Egypt for safety. Joseph promises them the best land of Egypt. He promises to care for their journey. He gives them changes of garments. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? Joseph donates to the brothers um, 16 garments. Now, we read it, and you can look yourself in the text. Where did you get 16? Well, it says he gives each brother a change of garments, and then he gives Benjamin, uh, or probably 15, I guess, probably not 16, um, and then gives Benjamin five changes of garments, favored. And he gives him 300 pieces of silver, though he was sold for, for uh, around 20 pieces of silver. Um, isn't that kind of a weird, another little like arc? They stripped him of his garment. He clothes them with garments. Generously clothes them with garments. So they load up the carts and all the silver and everything they can and they go back. And they get back home and they say, Joseph is alive. And it says in the text that Joseph's or Jacob's heart stood still within him or stopped within him. Now, I don't believe that's a reference to a heart attack. Um, that's how you have felt, perhaps, in your life when some amazing news, something you never expected, something that you thought could never happen hits you, and you just have to go, what? Wait, say that again? The heart's quickening and going. And then when they give him the proof, his heart revives within him. The old man leaning on his staff saying, just let me die. I'm bereaved. My son is dead. The other sons are... Suddenly he's like, let's go. And they load everything up and they come back to Egypt. And he says, I get to see my son before I die. And there is a joyous reunion that the rest of the text speaks about. So this really is the end of the, or the climax of the Joseph story, right? I mean, there's more chapters. This is 46. We got 47, 48, 49, 50. And it's kind of like an addendum to the story. This is really where the story finds its fulfillment, that it, it works out. The ending is glorious. 
But, and so we want to, that's why we only read one chapter today, which you probably all were a little bit shocked that we weren't reading a hundred and some verses today. Uh, it's a shorter one. We want to spend some time focused on some of the details within this speech and what's going on here and the theological implications for us. Joseph's speech. Now, um, well, before we get to Joseph's speech, let me just mention this change in the garments again. We see sort of like the full circle with them stripping of him as garments and him giving these garments to them. He loads their cart down. Uh, they they uh, sell him for 20 pieces of silver, which is the price of a common slave in that day. He loads on Benjamin 300 pieces of silver. Definitely he gave the other brothers silver as well. He, he'd already given all the silver back. You know, every time they came with food, he gave it back, all these sort of things. You know, it's, it's not ironic, but it's rather divine providence that Joseph's name in Hebrew means he adds, or another way to put that is generosity. Joseph lives up to his name. He's more than generous. He's abundantly generous where they had been abundantly vicious. And that's important as we work through the speech because sometimes it is easy when we have been grieved in some way or perhaps not even grieved. We are just, as, as we walk this life with people in relationship, it is sometimes easy to be generous financially when we have the means. I mean, why shouldn't Joseph be generous financially to his brothers? He's the father to Pharaoh after all, right? And to be fair... It's a little bit easier to heap silver and clothing on your brothers who have harmed you when you're standing there, Lord of Egypt, right? I mean, not trying to degrade Joseph in any way, but I can hear, because it was in my heart, like, yeah, it's easy to be this way when you're rich, right? He, he, he has been, he's not saying these things. This isn't happening to him while he's still in prison, Right? God has shown himself gracious and generous to Joseph. But that's just it. God has shown himself generous to Joseph. And he responds with generosity. But material generosity is one thing. Relational generosity is quite another. Nobody would have blamed Joseph, and he would not have been in the wrong to have said, all right, I reveal myself, I'm Joseph. Let me give you enough provision so that you, you and your family will never have to be hungry again. Now go home and leave me alone. Nothing would have been wrong in that. He didn't owe them anything. As some would say, that probably would have been just, Right? Fair. And even merciful to a degree. Right? He doesn't exact judgment on them. But Joseph in his speech and in his actions shows us that he is not only interested in justice. He is not only interested in mercy. He is interested in grace. In favor. And he is generous in grace or those who harmed him, who wronged him. And this is what makes the speech so amazing. Because when you, the speech can be divided into three parts. First, Joseph assures the brothers of peace in the first part of the speech. 
Secondly, and then you can read this on your own. We already read it this morning. Uh, But this leads us to um, verse 8, 7, beginning of verse 8. And then 8 through uh, 10 or 11, the second part, Joseph promises the provision and protection. Then the third part of the speech, he assures them again, but he assures them this way. He says, I want to do this, and I have all the authority to do this. I want to, and I can. Now, you see, humanly speaking, why this must happen. They, don't exp- they can't comprehend this. Running ahead in the story quite a bit, years later, when Jacob dies, the brothers assume that Joseph will exact his vengeance upon them then. Why did they assume that? Because that's what a normal person would do. They knew what they've done. It's been in their conscience, it's in their nightmares for the last 22 years. And he has to assure them again of the very same thing he assures them here. So he has to let them know, no, believe me, I want to do this. I'm going to do this. It's not a trap. You don't get here and then suddenly you become slaves. I will do this for you. What is remarkable about the first part of this speech, which is really where I think the heart of the story lies theologically, is that when you see what Joseph is doing and showing grace, when he's assuring his brothers of peace, Joseph finds himself concerned with how they feel about themselves. Did you see that in the text? Why does he assure them of peace? He says, but now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves. He cares about how they're feeling about themselves, that they might be grieved or angry with themselves. Is Joseph essentially saying no biggie? Well, no, because there's two times he makes very clear, you sold me into slavery. He's not denying the realities. He's not arguing that it was not a problem or not wrong. Once again, later in the story, in chapter 50, he'll call their deeds wicked. He said, with wicked hands you did this. You meant it. You intended it for wickedness. So he doesn't lighten what it is. But something is crazy here, is otherworldly, it seems like, in that he cares for how, not only their, that they won't you know, suffer or die or be tormented, but he doesn't want them to even torment themselves. He wants them to experience the beauty of peace. He wants them to be at peace in themselves. I don't know how he's doing that, by the way. And I hope you understand that I have not said this, that we're saying that the immediate application we run to is I need to go do that constantly to anybody who's ever aggrieved me. Not even saying that. We're talking about the wonder of what's happening here. This is pretty crazy and seems a little bit unrealistic. Furthermore, he tells them that he understands the reason that he is even there and even the cause of their grievous actions are because... God sent him to Egypt. 
He says that. God sent me before you. He says it again. Verse 6. I'm sorry, verse 7. God sent me before you. He says again in verse 8. So not was you, not you who sent me here, but God. Four times he uses the idea or speaks of the idea that God sent him rather than the brothers sent him into Egypt. And two more times he expresses that God did something else. God made me a father to Pharaoh. God gave me this. So five times he expresses that God sent him to Egypt. God did this. The story of Joseph is a beautiful challenge, isn't it? How do we reconcile this? How do we work through this in our brains and in our hearts? The issue of God sending Joseph to Egypt through the evil intentions and actions of these men is tough. I don't know of any Christian who doesn't struggle to work through the problem of pain and suffering and the sovereignty of God. It's a battle. It's a struggle. I have no desire to treat this subject, which is the point of Genesis, um, story of Joseph in Genesis. I have no desire to treat it with cliche statements or responses. I do wish to be clear and precise, not swerving to the left or to the right in understanding the doctrine of sovereignty. I think the theological word that is used, I think accurately to describe this, we sometimes say is compatibilism. And what we're saying with that is very simple, is that, that, that Joseph's brothers sent him into Egypt wickedly, that God sent him into Egypt righteously, that those two concepts would seem at odds often in our minds are actually compatible. They're true, two tracks of truth, if you will. As Charles Spurgeon said, two tracks of truth that you cannot make cross and I cannot make meet, but they join in the throne of God. <laughs> we have another word we use to describe this. It's a good word. We use the word mystery. We sang about it. William Cooper, who wrote that song, wrote God Moves in a Mysterious Way. His heart and mind being on this very mystery is why he wrote that. Theologian Gordon Wenham uh, put it simply, the relationship between divine sovereignty and human responsibility is a theological mystery that is something ultimately beyond human comprehension. And then he went on to say, and mysteries make us uncomfortable. <laughs> and do they not? But I don't think it's right to simply say it's a mystery, now let's move on. Because it was this very mystery that enabled jo Joseph to do and say amazing things like, don't be grieved with yourself. Joseph believed in this mystery, and that's what enabled him to reconcile with his brothers. 
we tend to emphasize one side of the argument against the other. Whichever side that is, we might run toward. We must not fall on one side where we are accusing God of our sinful choices, suggesting that He causes and ordains sinful intentions to be error. We must not run to the other side which weakens God and suggests in some way that He is responding to human choices and actions and He's waiting on us to see what we'll do. No, that's heresy as well. It's not really trying to find a balance. That's not the right way to look at it or middle ground between the two. That's not it. There is no middle ground between two theological truths. Compatibilism. These two tracks of truth that we must settle ourselves in as Joseph did. We all have inherited a sinful nature from Adam. Thus we all naturally act in accordance to our nature. Like a bird flies, a fish swims, sinners sin. And we inherited that nature from our father Adam. And it is ours to own and ours to be responsible for. God does not tempt us to sin, nor causes us to sinfully act. God did not cause Joseph's brothers to sin, and neither does he cause us to sin or others to sin against us. Thus, each person is justly responsible before God for their wicked actions. And at the same time, God is not ignorant or disconnected from any action of man, but is completely sovereign over all of them, good and bad, righteous and wicked. So while men are choosing wicked actions, God is actually and has already done as eternity, He is eternal being, has already chosen those sinful wicked actions to cause His perfect and holy will to be accomplished. Combatibilism. Two tracks running together, running parallel. Men choose to sin against others. God chooses to accomplish His perfect and good purposes even through those sinful choices. Thus the brothers sinned against Joseph. You sold me into slavery, he says. But in his own words, God sent me into Egypt. But what is so amazing is not just that God is sovereign, but that his sovereign will and wisdom accomplished through their sinful actions is what God had always intended to be what saves them from starvation. Joseph acknowledges this. God sent me before you to preserve life. He is sovereign over every breath, Every sustaining impulse, he holds the world in his hands and every action of mankind is subservient to God. He is sovereign and he preserves eternal life. 
and what happens when this world is done, only the sustaining sovereignty of God will give us any hope for eternity. He's sovereign. He sent me before you to preserve life. Joseph recognizes this and notes this, that it was not ultimately even for Joseph's sake. He doesn't say, God sent me here because he knew that I, he wanted me to have riches. He says, God sent me here for you. That's mysterious and otherworldly. That's not natural. That's supernatural. That's outside of our thinking. Because not only does he say, God sent me before you to save innocent people, to preserve all the lives of all the people in Egypt. God sent me before you to preserve you, the wicked people's lives. To save the ones who are doing the wickedness. Ultimately, for preserving a nation named after their father, Israel, through whom that nation, that man and these wicked sons would birth our Lord and Christ, who would extend this salvation to all the ends of the earth. Amazing grace indeed. That's the theological importance of the Joseph story. So simple, so confusing, so basic, so say it again. As Lewis said, I believe, deep enough or shallow enough for a child to play in, deep enough to drown the most erudite scholars. But there is a moral impulse in this story. We are not only drawn to Joseph's statements, but to his forgiveness of his brothers. And this is, I think, what's really important. Joseph's grace to respond in forgiveness and reconciliation with those who had harmed him was rooted in his confidence in God's sovereignty. He doesn't say, and I'll let you into Egypt, I'll take care of you, because you've proved to me that you truly are growing, capable of change and worthy of this. He doesn't say that. Now, they had shown change, and I think the reconciliation, the hugging and weeping on each other, I think that comes from their repentance. I believe that. That's why, they, that's why they're able to weep. That's why they're able to hug. That's why they're able to truly reconcile as they once were. Is due to, they repented. They turned. They were different. They changed. Signified by Judah. First, they didn't let Simeon rot in prison. Then they went back and got Benjamin. Then they gave their, they did everything opposite of what they'd done with Joseph. I believe that the human-to-human relationship was restored via their repentance. And that's necessary for reconciliation from our perspective, Right? People must turn. They must confess and turn. But what undergirded even that, what Joseph expected even in that, was this deeper reality that he was under 
a good and sovereign hand of the ancient of days. And so he's in the soil where now forgiveness and reconciliation can happen. There may be people that we need to reconcile with or need to reconcile with us, and I'm saying with all the hopefully the love intact in the world, they need to repent if they have wronged. But you and I, we must cultivate the soil that is ready for reconciliation through trusting a sovereign, good God. That he is God and we are not. And that puts us in the soil. It puts us in the, the arena, if you will, where reconciliation can take place. Finally, Christology. There is, oh, let me, let me back up. We've talked about this often. We've looked at it through Genesis, but, but I want to just remind us as a church family of this. Uh, who, who's the Old Testament about? And everybody says, oh, come on, everyone. Jesus, right? Who's the Old Testament about? Okay, there we go. We go through the Genesis all the time, right? We've been through, going through this. So we, see how, so we see this in prophecies and all sorts of things, but, but one of the more common ways we see it in these Old Testament narratives is through typology, or a typology is simply a type or something that images for us Jesus. Joseph and the story of Joseph is the most explicit and detailed type of Christ or Christological type in all of the Old Testament. Um, probably second to him is Moses, who gives us the type of Christ, leading them out of bondage. But Joseph is. So if we read and we think through the study of, story of Joseph and we don't spend our hearts and our minds and our, our worship focusing on Christ, we've missed, missed the story, purpose of the story, missed the whole thing. Joseph is a type of Christ. What is a type? A type is simply someone or something that points us toward Jesus. Joseph, favored son of Israel, descends into a pit, subsequently lifted up from that pit, essentially to perish as a slave in Gentile Egypt because his brothers envied him. But God had already sovereignly determined, even before time itself, before the wicked hands of his kin even delivered him up, that their wicked act would ultimately serve God's purpose, even to save the very sinners themselves from starvation and death. Divinely predetermined. So now, in our story today, Joseph stands alive, as if it were, come back from the dead, as his father would say, in their sight. What is more, he, the victim of their merciless crime, shows them supernatural, generous mercy and grace and assures them that though they are guilty, they sold him into Egypt, they are pardoned. Because God was sovereign over it all. Furthermore, he says, I will provide everything you need 
for your salvation. I'll load the carts up. I'll give you everything. You don't have to do anything. And then he says, and I have reserved a beautiful land, the best land, Goshen, for you. Come, enter the royal courts of Pharaoh. It's privileged. I am a father to Pharaoh. You are like my sons. You will be fathers to Pharaoh as well. You're in the royal courts. And all because of his exalted position before them. Not because of anything they had done or not done. But Joseph is just a picture, a type. He's not God. Joseph dies and is buried with his fathers. But many centuries later, a descendant of Israel, Jesus, the true and better Joseph, the Christ, the only begotten beloved Son of God, as God become man and he descends into the pit of our cursed world, as Philippians says, to be servant, slave. But he subsequently in his descension then lifted up on a cross to perish, though sinless, as a sinner, perish as a sinner, though sinless, by Gentile Romans. Because the tribal leaders, the priests, envied him. But God had already sovereignly determined, even before time itself, before the wicked hands of the Jews and the Gentiles and our wicked hands through them crucified him, that their and our wicked acts would ultimately serve God's purpose, even to save sinners, to save us. And so Jesus Christ, whom wicked hands killed, stood before many people three days later, having truly raised from the dead and was seen. What is more, Jesus shows us generous mercy and grace by assuring the guilty of our full and complete pardon, not on the basis of what we can do or what we have done, but on the basis of his good work alone. Because God is sovereign over all. So he provides all that is needed for our salvation. He heaps the riches of heaven upon us. We're given full rights in the royal court as sons of God, and he reserves a land for us and promises we'll have the best land, not only in Egypt, but the best land in all of eternity in the new Jerusalem. And all this because Christ Jesus is Lord and God. Though we are certainly guilty and shameful, he satisfies our souls with generous provision, gives us a change of garments and the riches of heaven. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ you will be saved. Would you stand with me so I can pray for you?